Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. You know what I'm about to ask you, and I know you probably want to hit that forward 30 second button, but please don't. The Tortoise Shack is struggling, along with many other media outlets, only they have ads and sponsors and we don't. Only they're part of big networks that have big corporate owners. We are not. We are completely independent and we rely entirely on you guys to support us and keep the microphones on and the conversations that you love to listen to happening. So if you're one of the thousands of people who are listening, please consider clicking the link at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise and doing that little bit of activism, the easiest bit of activism you can do on a monthly basis. Throw us the price of a cup of tea and a scone and know that you're helping a left-leaning, progressive, independent podcast platform limp on and still platform the conversations that lots and lots and lots of people are listening to. And you do get a ton of additional content for that. And all of the podcasts are available entirely plea-free. So you don't have to listen to me beg and beg, as you know, I must. So one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoise Come on board, join the community that we've built and help us keep going. Thanks for the support. Thanks for listening. I am going to stop rabbiting on. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and this is a podcast I've been looking forward to for a while. Uh, we get certain guests who, who obviously uh, kind of think of, of, of people where I'm from, the area I'm from and, and are made of their areas because there's too many people, I believe, and you can all both disagree with me now in this room, but who, you know, there was a phrase used by one elected official around here who was from Ballymun who said, I, I'm from Ballymun and look, I, I, I successfully got out of Ballymun and oh. I... I know and I used to use the phrase, "Well, I'm from Ballymun, and I love Ballymun, and it helped me, it helped forge and make me." And our guest today is Senator Tom Clonan, who continually says, "I'm a boy from Finglas, Tom, and 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 how Finglas shaped you." And I think I think that's your eternal credit because it's far from Finglas you've travelled, but nonetheless, you're still Tom from Finglas. That's true, but I am I am a Southsider now. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah. I think right? it's official. Yeah, I've, I've been a Southsider now for twenty three years. Yeah, and a long time. But you know, they say you can take the the man out of the bog, but you can't take the bog out of the man. So no, I mean, look, no more than yourself. Uh, growing up in Finglas in in seventies and the eighties, and I'm from Ballygall Avenue, which is near the village. It, it it's part of course it's part of who you are, and um, you know sometimes I think as as a society and as a culture. We tend to reify uh, the rural. The rural is authentic, you know, Patrick Cavanagh and stony grey soil and poems about frost pits and, oh, or, you know, but I don't even know the proper language for it. But like the the urban, the, the growing up in Dublin and growing up in a place like Finglas, which is a very, very strong community, like for me, that's as authentic as growing up in any other parts of the country. And, and of course, it shapes you and forms you. You know, I mean, all sorts of people from all, you know, they, they never forget, you know, their their county allegiance or their their town or their parish. I, and why why would we be any different? I remember, and again, we're showing our age here when someone went parts of because Santry was just woods, if yeah. you remember, and someone had moved to the other side of Santry, and one of the lads it was the first time I'd ever heard the phrase. Where's where's he gone? And he says, "Oh, we emigrated." And I said, "Where?" <laughs> and he literally moved, you know, which now is all apartment blocks. And you know, I, I, I love these. I love these descriptions. You know, oh, yeah, I remember when Fingus was all fields. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. we'll put those apartments now. That's where the singing farm was. Yeah, yeah. I always think, yeah, you, when you were there, Brian Baru was camped in the next town. <laughs> I, I, I have to say, hand on heart, I do remember Premier Days. Oh yeah. I, I never remember Premier Days. My dad used to bring milk in there from the, the ward, walk it in. Yeah. 
But the, the funny thing about Premier there is, and this is me getting having a go at, at estate agents, is that uh, was Premier Premier Dairies was fingless, it was always fingless, mm-hmm. and then they they built an uh, apartment block on it. And they called it Premier Square Glass in Heaven. That's, that's right. <laughs> and do you remember actually uh, when Ballymun Avenue? Yeah. Been, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, this is a real fingless one. There's a real Dublin Eleven story. Yeah. Uh, back in I think it was the early eighties, mm-hmm. or it could have been the late late seventies. They changed the name of Ballymun Avenue to Glass and Evan Avenue right. because they felt that the Ballymun Flats mm. was uh, was given Ballymun Avenue a, ba- a bad yeah. name. And the joke at the time was that the Ballymun Flats were going to be renamed Glass and Evan Heights. Did you see the name of the student accommodation up there? Aspen. Aspen. Yeah. Aspen in Ballymun. Aspen like. in Ballymun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, listen. Back when you had, remember the joint roundabout where, where you could walk under the tunnels in Ballymore. Yes. Maybe then you could you could use a little. You get on a tea tray and speak a little. I remember it, again. And uh, my next door neighbour, Bart Christie, um, was a milkman in Premier Dairies, and he they used to deliver the milk on horse and cart. Remember that? And uh, I remember he used to bring the horses up uh, Ballyball Avenue and go in for a cup of tea. With Maureen Christie, his wife, uh, they were a lovely family, and um, I remember going down to Premier Dairies with them, and they had all the feed bins for the uh, for the horses, and they had Jack Russells yeah. to to keep the rats, the rats. Yeah. I mean, just but Jack like, Russells are ratters, yeah. But when you think about it, like they were ahead of their time, they had battery operated vehicles and horse strong. I mean, if Eamon Ryan, if we could get him into a time machine and bring him back to Premier Dairies, he, he'd see the blueprint for the future. No, now. <laughs> Actually, yeah. I don't know, okay, total aside, the idea of using the surplus, um, the government surplus, to pay farmers to, to mine the land is not a bad one. Right, look, just transition, just transition, yeah. gotta pay. Gotta, gotta pay, you can't, can't expect people to, to, to have a drop in standards just because we want more butterflies, and I want more butterflies, but we can't, you know, we have to be serious about it. Just transition, it yeah. be ages. Tom, um, just... Going to the last little while, I introduced you as Senator Tom Clone. People will know you from lots of things. Obviously, as a military whistleblower, as a former army captain, as someone who has been a advocate and an activist for disability rights for the longest time. Uh, and you've been a very public person about a lot of the things that you've been through in your life. But if I want to, if I want to go to the senator, because I, we were involved when you were running for the Senate a couple of times, and there was a couple of times, you, you know, you kept going forward and we were interviewing you and we... You know, and uh, hand on heart, uh, we've never really, we, we don't put our thumb on the scales politically very often, and we don't support parties and that. No, no. But but I did I did say, yes, give Tommy a vote. You know, so I did actually get, and I remember, I remember texting you. Do, you. do you remember this? When when the first count came in, and I kind of got a feeling with, with the transfers, and I think I texted you, uh, evening senator. <laughs> and, you, and you were you were like, oh no, it's too early, Tony. And I said, oh, we don't yeah, know. But, but that's an extraordinary thing because the so the election was on March the thirty first yeah. last year, twenty twenty two, and I I wasn't even at the count because I didn't consider I had a chance of being elected. There were really strong candidates there. There was Hazel Chew, yeah. she's a brilliant candidate. Uh, Maureen Gaffney, who surprised everybody by by polling very very strongly, and then the person who topped the poll, Hugo McNeil. Uh, a very very high profile candidate, um, and actually, some of my neighbours on the south side said to me, "Yeah, you know, you're toast." And I said, "Why is that?" And they said, "Because Hugo McNeil has yeah. entered the fray." And I was saying, "Well, who's he?" Because yeah. when you're from Bingley, you don't really know. The- you, you're not. You didn't grow up at Goldman Sachs bankers and Finnegall and Finnegall <laughs> Gene Pool. I didn't know much about rugby, but uh, <laughs> you know. So so, but it goes to show, like I I didn't realise 
the impact of playing rugby for Ireland gives you such a profile. Yeah. And he, he ran a really, really good, uh, dogged campaign, top the pole. Now, I was very, very lucky with transfers and, and, the, and also the sequence of eliminations. Um, I just got in by, literally by the skin of my teeth. And I was actually going down to Cork to work with a group of whistleblowers. I've made a long-standing commitment to go down to Cork. Um, and I went down and I was driving down the, the, the motorway to Cork and just past Port Leash, the news was on with Cormac O'Hara and mm. uh, they were saying, and we now have some political news and it was Fergal King. And he said, news is coming in from Trinity that Tom Clunan's a dark horse. <laughs> and I remember thinking, uh, I remember thinking, should I turn the car around and go back to Dublin? Yeah. And that was it. When I got to Cork, I, I met some people. I went back to the hotel and the news came on at nine o'clock and Sharon Yolan said, and in political news tonight, and um, Tom Clonan has been elected and that was it. Uh, it came as a complete surprise. And because I never expected to be elected, Tony, I never did any research into what would happen if you did get elected. Right. So the following morning, uh, I got two emails at just after nine o'clock. It was Friday morning, April, the 1st of April, appropriately. Mm-hmm. And it said, first email was from the Technological University of Dublin saying, <clears throat> we note that you have been elected to the Houses of the Oireachtas. Please find attached uh, an application form for a career break, which which commences immediately. So it's great. To, it's a great privilege to have that mm-hmm. kind of safety net. But I mean, immediately my job was finished, mm. uh, albeit with the security of, of being on a career break, which is a huge privilege to have. And the other email was from the clerk of the Senate saying, you need to get in there and sign the book. Right. So it was real. Mm. Um, and there's no... And you had to start thinking about what I'm going to actually say yeah, get in there. How does it all work? Yeah. yeah. And like there is no internship. There is no kind of like introduction. You're you're in at the deep end. I was in Leinster House on that Friday. <clears throat> I went in on a motorcycle uh, because the traffic was very, very bad. Um, I think the guard on the gate thought I was uh, a pizza delivery man. And he <laughs> said, where, where do you think you're going? And they said, well, I'm going in here. And he said, why is that? And I said, because I've been elected as a senator. And it was such a strange thing for me to say. He just looked at me and went, all right, so. <laughs> um, so, you know, I had no office for a couple of months. And it's just, it's very interesting having been on the outside for 20 years, you know, advocating, protesting outside the gates very often to actually go inside. Now, I actually had only ever been in Leinster House maybe twice before. It's, you know, very brief visits in and out to meet a politician to ask them for something. And um, so to be in there full time, uh, it's a huge privilege, absolutely, um, but it's a very steep learning curve in trying to figure out how does it work and how do you use the levers to try and do something pro-social? Because the big challenge was, you know, outside for 20 years, given out about this, that and the other with regard to disability or the culture in, in our armed forces or whatever. And then when you get in, suddenly everybody's looking at you and saying, well, what are you going to do now? Oh, it must have felt like Shane Ross. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're, you're kind of... All of a sudden, you know, you realize, well, I felt um, a, a burden of responsibility to actually translate getting elected into actually doing something measurable, quantifiable, tangible, something good, uh, principally for, for our disabled citizens, because they're, you know, a very, very vulnerable group in our society. Did you find then when you got in there that wanting to do something, a lot, for a lot of them that get in, getting there is the end goal. You went in with a plan or you went in with an idea of a plan. But for an awful lot of them that go in there, it is simply just past time. Well, well, some of them, well, some of them have said, 
they don't want it. They abolish it, and then they became head of it. Yeah. But <laughs> was it, did you find that, that sort of the, the get up and go isn't there, or is it there with well, the chef? Well, I, I can tell you now. Um, all right, so my sole motivation for running for election was because of our family's experience of disability. My son Owen was a neuromuscular disease, and realizing uh, actually. Um, Louise Bayless said it very well yesterday on the radio. You know Louise Bayless? The, yeah, we know uh, Louise. Yeah, we've been on this Louise, loads of times. Yeah. Louise said, Ireland's a great country if you own your own home, if you have a job, and if you have your health. But if if you're sick in Ireland, <clears throat> or if you have a child with additional needs, or if you're not a homeowner, you're in big, big trouble. And so as a family, we realised with our experiences dealing with the, the health services executive, Department of Social Protection, Department of Education and Skills and all of the other stakeholders that when you have a child with a disability who's now an adult, you're fighting, fighting, fighting. And that was our sole motivation for run, to run for election was to protest about that as an act of protest. So getting in to the Shabbat then, my only reason for being there is to try and do something constructive about disability and access to services and supports and to vindicate the human rights of people with disabilities. Now, Part of the culture shock of going into Leinster House is meeting all of the other senators, to 60, mm. and all of the TDs. Because Leinster House is a small campus, mm. and you meet all of the people that you see on TV that I would only have known from meeting yeah. on, on TV. And then you begin to realise that it is a community of hundreds of TDs and senators, personal assistants, political advisors, civil servants, guards, the army are on campus. There's... I, I think there's over a thousand people there mm. and it's it's a right there in the city centre. Is it a bubble? Uh, every single one of those TDs and senators goes back to their constituencies and if they if they want to be re-elected they've got to sit down and listen to people. So so there's there's that element of it that you're realising that you're in this completely different environment. The differences then between people who are independent and people who are members of political parties like, I feel very privileged in that I am independent. So I have the, auto the autonomy and the capacity to to introduce legislation that I can draft myself. And you can do it in a bipartisan way. Yeah. yeah, and I don't have to look for permission to anybody from anybody. I can go on radio or TV and I can make comments about whatever it might be this consultative form of neutrality or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is an attempt to get us into NATO by stealth. Anyway, that's, that's, we, we, that's, we, we may go there, but let's just... Um, you know. but so, what are the motivations of of senators? So the first thing I'd say is that uh, they have been very generous as colleagues in the last year mm. across all parties and none. Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Labour Party, Greens, they have been very generous in kind of assisting me with the levers and, and, and telling me how the thing works. Mm. Um, but you do see when it comes to votes that the government has a, a very big majority in the Shannon uh, 40 out of the 60 are government uh, senators. Uh, so, you know, they, they can guillotine legislation. They can, and, and they, you know, they'll express their sympathy for your, for your position yeah. or your amendment, but they will vote is it, with is it, government. So that, you see that. Isn't that the frustration though? Because you're, let's just, let's boil it down oh, to. Can I just finish no. on that? But if you, what I have noticed that unlike Westminster or Washington, and I wouldn't like to compare the houses, but it's not so polarized that if you come up with a reasonable amendment that makes sense, mm. the government will accept it. So that's been a surprise. But in order to do that, 
you've got to talk to your community mm. and you know you've got to network and look for a coalition of people who are willing to support you mm. so that's the fundamental difference between being outside this protest and calling people out and being very uh, angry whereas when you get in there if you want if you want to get anything done you've got to make friends and influence people and try and get them to to come with you so you're building coalitions within broader coalitions and, yeah. and you're but but the but challenge the sole, then the sole purpose though is to do something positive and constructive for but this is where I come back to so we keep talking about the the people persons with disabilities and we know about the international obligations that we're supposed to have we also know that the main frustration we have is the optional protocol Tom and Ireland's role on that and that's something that you know you've been speaking about for years now and all advocates and and, and activists and all have been talking about and yet as you as you quite pointed out quite well pointed out it's the same I hope she doesn't mind me saying it but like Lynn Rowan would advocate for, you know, a dr- drug de- decriminalization model. She'd be advocating for a safe harm reduction model, and, you know, these sort of things. And she would sit down and she made speeches when she started her first term in the Shannon. And everybody nodded their head and said, yep, yep, great speech. Well done. And then when it came around to introducing parts and pieces of legislation, they said, no, you know, and you're finding you're coming up against that as well now still when you're, you know, you're getting, yeah. you're getting told, well, isn't that a great speech Tom made again? And here's that, here's, you know, everybody's yeah. agreeing with you, but well, we're not getting the legislation that we need. Yeah. So the, just on, on Lynn Rowan, mm. uh, who's also a, a Trinity Senator independent senator, uh, Lynn has been a great, again, mentor and colleague, very generous. And actually Lynn Rowan and Eileen Lee Flynn, yeah. um, I was in, Leinster House about a month and they were sitting outside in the sunshine and Eileen Flynn called me over and she said, Tom, I just want to say something to you. She said, don't ever forget why you're in here. And she says, you're an activist. And she said, don't ever cease being an activist. So whilst you're networking and trying to build up a coalition of the winning, there's still that basic starting point of I have to do something. I have to get something over the line for our disabled brothers and sisters. And that's, that is the bottom line. In terms of what you can do, like, so the optional protocol on the UN convention is in the program for government. And I have been saying to them based on the timelines and the time horizon for this government that they need to then ratify it this year, mm. 2023. But also since I got into the Shannon and looking at legislation and having the services, for example, of the office of uh, the parliamentary legal advisor, still PLA, and I've had. Uh, some very good co- consultations with them. I've discovered that Ireland is the only jurisdiction in the European Union where there is no obligation on the state or its agencies, i.e. the Health Services Executive, to provide any treatment supports or interventions for disabled citizens. That's extraordinary. Yeah. We're the only country in the European Union that doesn't have that legislation, whether it be social care acts or disability legislation. Uh, and they have very comprehensive legislation in that regard in England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. We don't. They have it in Germany. They have it everywhere in Europe. But you know why that is. Well, and that's why we are the worst country in the European Union to have a disease. It's because they handed all of this over to the, the, the clergy. That's why. And they, they never codified anything. It was just handed over to the clergy to all these things. And the clergy are now gone. Gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're left with these anomalous Section 38, Section, section 39 organisations. And, and essentially, we're in failure. So one of the things with the assistance of the Office of Parliamentary Le- Le- uh, Legal Advice, I've, I'm in the process of drafting two pieces of legislation. One is a very short piece of legislation that I hope to introduce before the summer, which will make it legally obligatory for the state to treat people with disabilities. 
And then that returns to your question of, right, you can introduce that legislation, but can you get the government to vote for it? Mm. Well, here's the thing. How could they not vote for it? You know, you can create the moral... <laughs> And ethical pressure there. It, 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 this is this is on audio only, but I just I just gave Tom a little bit of. Mm. <laughs> you know, but that but that's it. That's well, the fight. There's two things that can happen you here, know, Tom. Like, so, and you notice ministers love this. So quite often, if you're lucky, what they could do is they could say, "We like that. Park that. I'll I'll, I'll produce it myself and put my own name on the top of it." That's that's a win for you. It just takes longer. Right? We see this. Yeah. But if you get it genuinely, if, the, if there's. If there's if there's cross party support and and you know no one wants to be seen to be the person who doesn't do the the right thing, well then you get it over the line. But I just I know from speaking to people so often that when you think they've lost the case, they have they've lost a, uh, something they've been working on. They may not have lost it. It's going to come back in a different guise six months down the line because the minister wants to be the person who pulls that green lever. Yeah, to be honest with you, you know if if we can get that piece of legislation over the line. It, it would make a, an immediate fundamental difference to the, the the quality of life of people with disabilities. Because I, I, I have, I'm supporting a young woman from Germany. Her name is Evelyn Sink. She's mm. actually very like my son Owen. She's a wheelchair user. She has a neuro, neuromuscular condition. She got a master's degree in creative writing in the UCC. And she flew over from Stuttgart, Ryanair, to Dublin with two, her two carers. Mm. We took it in turns to look after in the hotel. They were down in Temple Bar having a few drinks, listening to the traditional music. She comes into Lancaster House and meets me. And I'm looking at her and she told me that in Germany, in her state, it's up in the north of Germany near Kiel. Mm. As soon as she was 18, they had accessible accommodation for her and a full 24-7, uh, 365 days a year package to support her to live independently. And that's why she was visiting me. The chances of my son being able to hop on a Ryanair flight to go to Germany and visit somebody in their parliament is zero. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to do is get us from where we are now to where they are in Germany. And incidentally, Evelyn, and she won't mind me saying this, she enjoyed Temple Bar. <laughs> <Don't stop what laughs> she said, I'm going to become an Irish citizen. And she said, even if I have to marry an Irish man too. <laughs> and I was saying to her, well, there's so many things wrong with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. But I was saying, if you know, Evelyn, if you become an Irish citizen, you won't be traveling anywhere. No. You won't be living independently. You could end up in a nursing home because mm -hmm. there are 1,300 people. Because we institutionalize. So, so, so the thing is, that's where we want to be, like the, the, the supports that are enjoyed in other European Union countries. But the mechanism, how do you make that happen? And it seems to be the case in Ireland that there is no desire on the part of the HSE or the other stakeholders to actually do this. So you have to legally compel them to do it. Mm. That's right. And that's that's where we're at. As a father, I'm a disabled child, but I'm a disabled child, I'm an adult. Now, Tom, you know from looking at other countries, there is a cradle to grave on it. We can't even get past the first six weeks, right? We can't get diagnosis, we can't get the treatment, we can't get people to, to help. Everything is delayed development. Everything is delayed development. So they're hitting all the markers later. They should be hitting the markers. Do you honestly think that the government that we have there at the moment, and I'll tell you what the government would tell you, it's your burden to bear. I've actually heard that. I've actually heard that. It's your burden to bear. Why should the state have? And that's what I've heard from opposition politicians. So I'd say to you, you you've... From opposition politics, or sorry, from 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 the government politics. They're my opposition. So. <laughs> <laughs> the government politicians, you've a massive, massive task ahead of you. Yeah. Well, do you know, uh, in after the crash, mm -hmm. when Fine Gael came to power and they promised us new politics, I was at a lunch for journalists in the city centre, and uh, 
and the Kenny Gagan address, and he talked about it's something that um, Leo Varadkar says quite often about an, an Ireland of opportunities for people to get up early in the morning. Yeah. So it was opened up to a Q&A and I stood up and I said, look, uh, Taoiseach, I said, I get up at half five in the morning to do DIY physiotherapy with my son because yeah. we can't get physio in Ireland. Nobody can. Uh, you can't get meaningful physio interventions. And that was back in the crash. And I said, you know, will you promise in these austerity cuts not to target carers uh, and people with disabilities? And he said that he, he said to me, I cannot give you that undertaking. But he also said something else which is very interesting. He said to me, you do what you do for your son because you love him. And he said, you, you're you getting up at the half five in the morning is an act of love. And he said, the state cannot be expected to intervene in the, in the family lives of people. Mm -hmm. Now, he, was, he, he wasn't being, he, his intention was not to be offensive mm -hmm. or to be patronizing, but that's... But it laid out... Uh, it's a, a political philosophical and ideological position yes, yes. that you're on your own well, path. But, but the message was sent to you, the state is not going to intervene. But, but Tom, this message was sent clearly this week when we had the, the whole story politically has been infighting within the coalition partners. Um, Leo Varadkar planting his flag firmly in the, you know, tax breaks. Uh, uh, the, again, let's go back to topic. And again, this phrase, the squeeze middle. I saw someone actually did that. Remember on the pod on Sunday, Martin, on Saturday, I said to you, it breaks down four to one. So, yeah. You know, if you're in a higher income bracket, you'll benefit from these tax breaks four times more than someone who's in officially did what they term the squeeze middle. So in the states, they call that tax breaks for the rich, Tom. Right? Yes, yes, that's yes, what the, yes. that's what they call them. When, like when Trump did them, they called them tax breaks for the rich. This, but we have this marketing issue here. Where we've decided to say it's it's actually a break for the squeeze middle. That's not true. Statistically, economically, it's not true. But Who's going to argue against because we've said, well, you don't want to give people a break. But the truth is we need these services. We need to, we need to keep the, we actually need to broaden the tax base. We need to, you know, keep all of these things in line because the windfall taxes aren't going to last forever. We can't become, we can't stay as Ireland Inc., the greatest tax avoidance network in the globe. Someone else is going to outdo us. That's what happens in the nature of tax competition. And if we don't put the infrastructure in place now, like the legal obligations on the state, it won't be done when there's a downturn and you're, you're always close to another downturn, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I mean, look, the, the, these huge public, sorry, these huge budget surpluses, you know, 64 billion. Mm. I, think, uh, I actually find that quite frightening because it is, it's leprechaun economics. Yeah. You know, we can't rely upon that as, as a predictable, reliable source of revenue for the, for the state. And, uh, you know, it, it reminds me of the kind of the group think that was at its height during the Celtic Tiger, you know, where... Mm. The boom is just going to get boomier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're at that point. So, you know, I think there will be uh, that bubble will burst because yeah. I think our revenues are relying upon a very, very small number of multinationals. Five of them provide over 50%. Yes, yeah, like that, you know, that's frightening. That to me is uh, as, a, as a citizen. <laughs> I also feel true that, you know, the use of the word surplus when you have so many deficits in your society, everything from healthcare, housing, all of these are deficits. Yeah. Yeah. And the other, and, and the other argument we don't hear very often, and I'm well, actually going to give him a bit of credit. It was Owner Brent said it when he said we have the conversation about you know any housing plan. You never see it to the fore on and how, what percentage of that will be people that can with disabilities can access it and live independently. You know, we see this, we're going to build 30,000 homes. We're going to provide X amount of that will be social and affordable. X amount will be private rental. X amount of it is, 
you never we never get down the scales to say and how much will that be uh, will, will empower people with disabilities to have independent living we ha- i spoke to a woman who was fe- living in her car and then going between kind of couches because she had a person with a disability because the hap limit she had she needed to be have a, a place where her carer could stay yeah and they couldn't match it so you know this is the such that's happening right now i do want to i'm conscious of time i know you've a lot on but so let's let's actually change tact if you don't mind for a few minutes you referenced the slow erosion of our neutrality is is the way probably the best way to phrase it there has been a lot of talk about it now and a lot of people saying and i thought it was actually interesting you might know do you know will holden he does the legit it's the irish logistics uh, guy who's he's in syria i think at the moment yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so will's been on this pod several times and he's been he's been to yemen he's been to syria he's been to iraq he was there when isis came in yes. he's you know he's gone everywhere and, and seen these things and he got upset by, by Stephen Collins's article in the Irish Times this week, where he said, "People who think our, we need to grow up, pe- our neutrality is not respected and thought of uh, in, well internationally." And Will said, "It bloody well is." Uh, you know, I've, yeah, I've well, been- absolutely. And any of us that have been in on the front line, hmm. like Will or myself in the past, you know, when you're actually there uh, in the Middle East or elsewhere, and you know, people interact with you differently when they realize that you're Irish. Mm-hmm. And it does it does make a difference. And I'll give you a more recent example. Uh, the, the the conflict in Yemen, the Swedes brokered a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. to try and get food aid into the port. Um, but it needed to be demined. And that was the blocking point. Neither Iran nor uh, Saudi would agree to any any third party going in to demine the port until an ex-Irish Defence Forces ordnance officer mm-hmm. Uh, was brought into the picture and both Saudi and Iran agreed, okay, he's Irish, he can lead that operation to demine the port to get food aid in to help hundreds of thousands of children who are on the point of starvation. That's the difference. And, you know, look, Stephen Collins, you know, he's writing uh, consistent with uh, Fine Gael's stated aspiration for us to join NATO. And and they are honest and they're upfront about that. Their MEPs published a position paper a number of years ago where they said, you know, explicitly Ireland should join NATO. I don't think there's any benefit to Ireland joining NATO. I, I do think that we need to invest in our infrastructure mm-hmm. and pay our sailors, soldiers and aircrew a living wage because we're losing those vital skill sets. Um, but, you know, at the moment, we, we, we it's now acknowledged that the Royal Air Force is patrolling our airspace and that is a huge undermining of our sovereign and neutral status and you know, it's difficult for us to say that we're neutral in that context. So we need to invest properly in, in that infrastructure so that we can vindicate our neutral status. I think, and and on the second thing on that, obviously, again, it's a media battle now, unfortunately. Well, it's been framed in the context yes. of the war in Ukraine. Yeah. And I think that's really cynical. Yeah. And um, look, we absolutely, Irish people and the Irish government support the, the people of Ukraine and this Un, unwarranted war of aggression that's been unleashed on them by, by Vladimir Putin for whatever brittle, fragile ego he has. Um, there's absolutely no doubt about that. But we should not talk about our neutrality in our military neutrality in that context. And I'll tell you why. Because we grew up in the 70s and the 80s when there were Russian troops all over Europe mm. and there were nuclear missiles pointed at every European capital. We didn't frame the discussion of our neutrality back then in that context. Why should we now? This, this war will come to an end um, and I'm hoping that Russia will be expelled from um, the, the, the borders of Ukraine such as they were before 2014. We'll have to see what happens. 
but Russia will be there. Putin will be gone. Russia will be there for a very long time. We have to find a way of of being in the world that doesn't involve us all being in military blocks because that leads inevitably to conflict. And as a person who's experienced conflict the first time, it's a squalid. Uh, it's the most it's the lowest point of, of human activity. Can, and can I? You know, the people who are most vocal about us joining NATO are people who have never heard a shot fired in anger <laughs> and people who will never serve in uniform. And I include amongst that some very, very outspoken, hawkish academics in Ireland yeah. who really, really um, ought to know better. Yeah. Now, there is issues. And of course, we need to spend on defence forces. And we absolutely, I mean, they are coated down to the, I mean, I know what the guards are getting paid. Same, well, it's a lot of things. I mean, it's, it's not even, it's not even the, the salaries. It's salaries, obviously, but it's the, they're going into the field. They're going to dirt. They're in Lebanon, and they're finding issues with GPS systems. They're finding issues with, you know, that we we know a, a soldier lost his life recently, and we know there are reports into this the situation where they found themselves in a situation whereby some of the things didn't work that that should have maybe protected that 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 person. You know, and I mean, they're talking about doing away with the triple lock. Well, the triple lock is there for a very good reason. It's for the people to be in control of neutrality. That's what it exists for. It doesn't exist so a party can come in and ch- it, it's there to stop a party coming in. Indeed. It, it has served us well. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk that from government that the UN Security Council mandate, that requirement, allows Russia and China to veto where Ireland sells, sends its troops or where we don't. But actually, that's not strictly the case because we can also get uh, sanction from the UN Assembly, yeah. which doesn't require a UN Security Council mandate. Um, so I think we, we, we need not to lose sight of that. And also, you know, Ireland gets to choose on a case-by-case basis what conflicts we get involved in, in terms of the use of our troops. Um, and that has served us well. I, I think some of the decisions are questionable, like our involvement in the war in Afghanistan, which a lot of Irish people don't understand that the Defence Forces were deployed to Afghanistan throughout Operation Enduring Freedom, from right back to 2002. But what, what's happening at the moment, and this consultative forum on neutrality, all being framed in the context of the war of Ukraine, I think there's a bit of a mm. a, a, a rush uh, or t- towards abandoning our neutral status that I think is very unwise. Yeah, you don't, you shouldn't make those decisions. Can I, one last thing, you, you mentioned you know, people, some of the main advocates for this, and I mean, it's very disappointing. I mean, I pointed this out that you know there's a there's a news talk um, host who emceed an event that was paid for by Lockheed Martin. You're like, this is so transparent. You know that is very transparent. You're, you're emceeing an event being paid for by a weapons manufacturer. Uh, it's it's worrying, Tom. But you've seen some of the worst scenes yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, like. Do you feel like because because those pirates boys? By the way, you saw those in Lebanon, right? Lebanon yes. is currently on its knees. Mm-hmm. Um, situation for Palestinians is probably at the rate of they're dying at one and a half people per day at currently since and the new Netanyahu government are, are in power. The EU is you know kind of saying, well, we're taking Israeli gas. The challenge is facing us in a, if we continue to militarize the EU. Is is this idea then because we're going to face a climate catastrophe soon? Yeah, it's happening. And, and you know, to use the awful language of, of the military industrial complex, climate change is a threat multiplier. 
Mm. And we're entering into a century of multipolar reality where the, the, the if you like, the, the, the stability, if you could call it that, of the world order is, is, is very seriously challenged. And this will be a century of conflict. It ha- some of that has the potential to be apocalyptic conflict. We've already had the threat by Vladimir Putin to use so-called tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Watch that space. Um, if if Ukraine's spring offensive, spring summer offensive, pushes uh, Putin's forces right back to the Russian border, and and I try to explain this to people, like the Hiroshima, Nagasaki, they were about a hundred kilotons. Okay, the big uh, nuclear missiles that we would have been familiar with from our youth, they're, they're thousands of megatons, mm. and you know a weapon like that would destroy Los Angeles, like in a camera flash. But the Russians have developed what they call tactical nuclear mm. weapons. These are 10 kilotons. Suitcase. These are very, very small. They don't need, uh, they could actually be deployed in theatre. You could fire from a, a conventional artillery piece. So you don't have that big, long chain of command that we would have had in the past. If one of those was to be deployed in Ukraine, it would destroy a city like Slavyansk, which is about the size of Athlone, let's say, mm. would kill 10,000 people immediately and would create a zone of exclusion of about 12 miles in, in diameter. Yeah. And that would be my fear that Putin, on the point of being humiliated by Ukraine, might consider using a weapon like that because of its so-called, uh, but even because it's it, it's it's a so-called small weapon. Mm. It would be like creating Chernobyl, yeah. uh, you know, on the battlefields to to deny Ukraine access to territory. Now that that's a possibility. That would be a game changer internationally because that would embolden other states to develop these weapons and to use them. But we are entering a century of conflict. Sadly, Brexit, Britain's exit and departure from the European Union, ironically, they were one of the more common sense, <laughs> level-headed groups that didn't want to see the emergence of a European superstate. With France and Germany at, at the helm now, you know, we will see attempts within the European Union to make it an economic success a social success, a political success, but also a military success. Mm-hmm. And that is, that way lies disaster. Every time Europe arms itself, they did it twice in the 20th century, led to mayhem. And, you know, Ireland needs to kind of step back, take a big deep breath and think about how we can use our neutral status and our incredible diaspora all around the world, people like Will, mm-hmm. Will Holden, to, to be the voice of common sense and the voice of humanity and to have alternative narratives to, you know, militarization, escalation of conflict and, and killing. Mm-hmm. There has to be an alternative. The, the argument that's put forward is that we're defenseless against because Russia is the current enemy. We are defenseless against Russia. But the actual thoughts that Russians would put feet on the ground, I mean, we're not significant enough to put feet on the ground. Well, you have to look at past behavior to predict future behavior. I mean, the country that has invaded us. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> if we're going to be invaded by anyone, it's much more likely it's going to be our yeah, near and, neighbor. Yeah, and, and it's and, already know, a NATO member. Yeah, now we 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 have a very good relationship with with Britain, and you know, truth be told, if we're not cousins, if we're not brothers and sisters, we're certainly cousins. You know, in terms of all of the things that we have in common. My my view of of our armed forces is, you know, man made natural disasters. Intervention. It's it's a human. It's it's an asset that we should use in in pro-social ways, peacekeeping, uh, sending our people abroad to assist when you have major 
um, man-made and humanitarian disasters, of which there will be more because of accelerating climate change. And that's where we can intervene in a pro-social way. Um, but we have to have the basic toolkit to defend ourselves, you know, to monitor our airspace and keep it safe. It's one of the busiest air corridors in the world. 75% of all US, European, Middle East, North African air traffic goes through our controlled airspace. We need to monitor our maritime domain. We are responsible for 15% of Europe's waters, 220 million maritime acres. It's going to be the Saudi Arabia of the future with wind energy. We have to be able to secure it and monitor it and patrol it. And all the subsea cables that carry all the data and one third of the world's internet traffic goes through the fiber optic cables that drop off the Irish coast down, down the Atlantic shelf. And, you know, in terms of the challenges on the ground, like in the next 20 years, we're going to have some kind of an all-out entity. Yeah. And part of Ireland is in NATO. We don't know what the, the future is going to look like, but it's coming very, very quickly. We have to have an armed forces that is acceptable to all members of, of, the, of people who live on this island. Yeah. We have to think about the administration of justice, policing, intelligence, defence in an all-Ireland context. That's all coming down the tracks. We have to prepare for it. And none of those things, in, to my mind, involve joining a military alliance. No. Uh, you know, as maybe advocated at a, at a conference sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Like that's, you know, that doesn't even pass the laugh test. It is. It is. You know, we, we're such a small country. That's, I mean, you said about the other people being happy with our army. And, and there is part of that in here. But do we really have an army? Is it more a defense force or... It, that's more its role as a defence. We don't really have an aggressive army. We don't have one. No, we, like, but what we do need is um, is a conventional force that is able to monitor our cyber, maritime, and air domains just to keep, even from the point of view of keeping civil aviation safe and secure for the millions of people who are transiting through our controlled airspace on a daily basis. You know, the, the Jeffersonian vision for the U.S. military was one about engineering and assisting and supporting the, the, the citizens of the United States. It was only in the 20th century that they started to think about using for the, the projection of power and the use of force. Empire. Yeah. And like Ireland in its declaration, you know, and in, in our um, uh, proclamation decries that kind of imperialist, colonialist imperative. And we, we should continue that tradition. Tom, I think that's a good place to leave it. Oh, I think so. I think it's a very good place to leave it. We, 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 well, I'm proud that we're Johnson's been very proud of. And I don't hear that coming into the conversation to be proud of it and what we've done and what we've achieved as peacekeepers around the world. Thank you very much for coming along with this conversation. We'll certainly have you back in after the next election. Yeah. Good we'll, we, we'll, uh, well, we, we might actually be hopeful that they're, they're, there, there may actually, they may extend the franchise. You know, there is, there's more talk of the franchise being extended. Yeah, they, yeah, it's going to happen. And, and the, I don't know if it'll happen in the next election cycle, mm, but it is going to happen. And, and and it can only be a good thing. But it does, it does show that there is, there's also a soft power to the work that you've done, Tom. So, 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 thank you for that and the advocacy that you've done. Even the advocacy you've done on housing has been has been noted and and done very well. So, so, thanks for that. And again. For someone who went in and said, oh, you were caught cold, I think you've had a decent uh, old 15, 16 months in, in the Shannon. So, so well done. Uh, and, and Thanks very much. Long, long, quick yes now. What do you think of one in the Jack general? No. No. Okay. Listen, okay. listen, folks, we leave it there. We have Stephen Kinsella from UL, the economist, uh, to, to join us next. So there's plenty coming your way. But uh, I hope you enjoyed that. I really did. Talk to you all very, very soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting
It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.